And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at themes in this gospel from those key verses, Romans 1, 16 to 17, and exploring each week why this is wonderful good news. Um, So we looked at the power of the gospel, then we looked at the salvation of the gospel. Last week, we looked at the righteousness of the gospel. And this week, as we wrap up our sermon series, we're thinking about the response to the gospel. And what is the response that Paul expects and um, requires from all people as an apostle? It's the response of faith, faith which we've seen powerfully illustrated in David's life and heard about in his testimony today. Now, as we talk about faith, I think we have to recognize that our general cultural view of faith and the biblical um, word or, you know, implications of what are being uh, meant by faith are slightly at odds. So, for example, today when we talk about faith, uh, we might think of a blind leap of faith As Alice in Wonderland said, you know, you close your eyes and you believe 10 impossible things before breakfast, and that's what faith is. Or maybe more charitably, and I suppose a lot of people think of it like this, there are certain people who have faith, and there are other people, secular or um, agnostic people, who do not have faith. And quite often, faith thought of like that is considered a kind of involuntary quality. Some people have faith, others just don't have faith. Um... You know, I often hear people say things like, you know, I'd love to have faith, but I'm just not a religious person. In other words, it's not a kind of quality that's true to me. Um, I can't tick that box in the census, you know, whatever religion it is, that's just not true for me. But I'd love to have faith that seems to do you some good, but that's not where I'm coming from. But notice when the Apostle Paul in the reading we have, particularly that second reading from chapter 3, verse 27, talks about faith, he clearly doesn't mean that because he talks about a law or a principle that requires faith. And you can't require something of someone that they're unable to respond with, right? So if it's involuntary, it's not reasonable to require it. No, he seems to expect that the response of faith is something you have power over. It's a decision you can make. And indeed, we heard David talking about it. He decided to follow Christ. That's the response of faith. So it's not involuntary. It's voluntary, something that anyone can choose. Equally, it's not just for the preserve of the religious. That's not the category Paul goes with. He goes with a first century category of Jew or Gentile, in other words, um, circumcised or uncircumcised. And he says, whoever you are, the gospel requires this response from you, faith. So whether you consider yourself religious, non-religious, irreligious, secular, agnostic, faith is still something which Paul suggests, you know, you should be required to give. And so as we look at it, we're going to try and unpack it a little bit today and try and understand what faith is and what it's not and what difference it makes to our lives. To do that, we're going to take the contrast that Paul gives because here he says the opposite of faith isn't non-belief so much as it is living, as he calls it, by works of the law. So the opposite of faith for Paul is living by works of the law. What is that? What implications does that have for our lives? Let's think about under four headings, living by works, the problem with living by works, and then we'll think about living by faith and the freedom of living by faith. Let's first of all think about living by works. Verse 28 of chapter 3, Paul says this, for we maintain, that is we underline, that a person is justified, made right with God, by faith apart from or instead of works of the law. Now, he says that we maintain this because it's something he's got to underline because he knows that the natural inclination 
of the human heart is to think, if we are going to be made right with God, if we're going to be justified, then it has to be done, surely, by what he calls works of the law. Now, he's writing into a predominantly religious context in the first century, and whether it was a Roman religion or a Greek religion or the Jewish religion, he knows that the assumption is the way you get right with God, the way you get right with the gods, is by works, by what you do, by your zeal, by your religious observance, um, by your passion for God, by what you do, by how moral or how religious your life is, right? I mean, if it's not that, on what other basis could it possibly be? And in fact, he has to say this to the Jews because despite the fact they've got the Old Testament, it's obvious by the way he argues in Romans that they haven't understood that the Old Testament was not teaching justification by works, but was teaching justification by faith. So chapter 4, just after our passage, he's going to argue that Abraham, the great patriarch of Judaism, was not made right with God by works of the law, but by faith. And David, the great king, So two of the pinnacle figures of the Old Testament was not made right with God by works of the law, but by faith. And then he's going to go on and argue in chapter 10 that Moses, you know, so they've got the big three there, Abraham, David, and Moses, also did not advocate keeping the law of Moses, the law that Moses gave as he came down from Mount Sinai, because it made you right with God, but Moses advocated living by faith. And he's saying that because he knows in a religious context, in a traditional society, It's normative, just absolutely normative that people think if you're going to get right with God, you do it by your works, by your effort, by your zeal, by your religious observance. How else could it be? Now, you might be thinking, look, I came along here today to watch David get baptized, maybe mildly interesting, but what on earth does this have to do with me in a global city like London in the 21st century? Well, whether you would consider yourself religious or irreligious, I put it to you that you still live. See, the thunder means you have to listen, right? As I was leaving my house this um, this afternoon, there was this like massive crack of lightning and this big bit of thunder. And I didn't think my sermon this morning had been that bad, but you know, there we are, it's obviously all right. So, as a non-religious person, we normatively think what justifies me, what makes me right, whether we use that language or not, the way that I feel right about myself or right with God, if he exists, I don't know whether he exists or not, you might say, is because of my works, because of my effort, because of what I do. I think about how you feel when you do well you know, at work. You get a promotion. You can't help but have a bit of a spring in your step, but it's more than just the happiness of a promotion. It's because you feel a bit more justified. You know, I'm a bit more righteous. You know, I feel the world's a bit better, a bit more right, and I feel a bit more right. Or when you've, you know, done well at something, or maybe let's say you've got a few more followers on social media, you think, yeah, this justifies me, it makes me right. A friend of mine who's a mentor and a psychiatrist and a Christian has got grandchildren, and um, he knows that this tendency for us to justify ourselves by our achievements, by our works, and by what we do is just so endemic that He's trying to help his grandchildren not to fall into that trap, and we'll see some of the trappings of it later. So he was playing drafts the other day with his grandson, and his grandson's really good at drafts. Um, My mentor was keen to say that he did actually beat his grandson, but anyway, his grandson was good at drafts, put him in a good game. And at the end, he said to his grandson, hey, you're really good at drafts, particularly for your age. And his grandson said, oh, thanks, granddad, I'm going to beat you next time. And then his granddad said to him, but just because you're good at drafts doesn't make you better than anybody else. 
Now, why did he as a psychiatrist want to say that to his grandson? Because he knows the human psyche. He knows that the moment we're good at something, we do intuitively think it makes me better, better than I was before, better than other people. In other words, we can't help but construct our identity on the basis of our performance. We do well at something. We don't just say, hey, I'm just good at it. No, we say, I'm good at it, and therefore, I feel better than other people. I feel like I'm doing better in life. In other words, it justifies me. It's not just the Jews in the first century. It's not just religious people. We all construct our identity on the basis of our works of the law, however we phrase that. Doing well in our career, our CV, our educational background, our performance, how many friends we've got on social media, you know, just our general lifestyle, how we're doing. It's on the basis of our performance. We can't help but fall into that trap that my mentor was wanting to say to his grandson, don't fall into that. It doesn't make you any better. Justified by works. Well, what's the problem then of living by works? I think the problem is what Paul refers to here. Notice what he picks up in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Now, why does he pick up on boasting? Because he knows that the moment you do that link, you say, I'm good at something, and therefore that makes me a little bit better than myself before or than other people, you can't help but fall into the trap of pride, the trap of boasting. And he also goes on to say in verse 29 that God is the God of not only the Jews, but the God of Gentiles too. And he's saying that because living by works of the law made the Jews feel that they were better than other people, and therefore it broke down community. It caused disunity. So he sees two problems with the psychology of living by works. One is that it makes you proud, if you think you're doing well. The other one is that it tears apart community, causes the breakdown of community. Let me unpack those two and show you why living by works always leads to those two things. It makes you proud and boastful, or at least to the breakdown of community. First of all, making you proud and boastful. If you think that you are good at something, and by being good at something, that makes you better than other people, how can it not make you proud? I mean, after all, a peacock, Shows off its feathers, right? Because it's got a glorious display. Why? Because it can. A cockerel, when he rules the um, farmyard, crows. So logically or rationally, what is wrong with a person when they've done well at something, walking around and telling everybody about it, boasting in it? I mean, is that not normative? It was normative, by the way, in the first century. You know, if you were writing a book in the first century, it would be normal that you would boast in the first introduction, in the first chapter of your book, because you were saying to people, this is why you should listen to me, look at my achievements. Now, here we are in the 21st century, and we think that's ugly. When people boast, we don't like it. But, but what's wrong with it? I mean, after all, shouldn't people who are good at things walk around and measure themselves against other people and say, I'm better than you? I mean, what's wrong with that? It's just true, right? But we know it's ugly, so true or not, it's ugly. But what's wrong with it? Well, pride is ugly because it's a distortion of the self. You know, to be so fixated on yourself that you can't help but measure yourself up against other people and evaluate how you're doing and construct your identity in such a way that when you do well, you say, I'm better than other people, is just ugly because it's distorting you. You're not supposed to be like that. The Christian thinker and reformer, Martin Luther, talked about um, what he said in Latin was incurvatus in se, being turned in on yourself. 
He said that when you're constantly evaluating how you're doing in life by works of the law, constantly thinking, how do I measure up against other people, it turns you in on yourself. Uh, Think of it like this, you know, a flower should be turned up towards the sun and out, and when it does, it looks beautiful. But have you ever walked past a flower or something that's got blight or some kind of um, disease and it's twisted up and turned in on itself so you can't see its full beauty? That's the human psyche when you become self-obsessed. Constantly thinking, have I done enough? Am I enough? Will I do enough? Am I justified? Constantly obsessed with yourself, and therefore whether you boast and say, I'm doing better than other people, pride. And of course I know if you're middle class, you're very good at dressing it up and just dropping it into conversation, and no one really notices except they do, by the way. When they walk away, they think she or he talks a lot about himself and how they're doing in a kind of clever way. So we don't do it overtly, do we? We're too clever for that, but we still do it. It's just ugly. Or the flip side is not obvious pride, but it's false humility, where someone can't help but talk about how bad they are at everything, and again, they're just obsessed with their self. The difference is they don't like what they see in the mirror versus the person who does like what he or she sees in the mirror. You see, again, it's still the turning in on yourself, the incurvatus in say. It's the flower that's strunched up like this rather than up and out, and it's ugly. It's ugly psychologically, but it also causes the devastation of community. Because, of course, a proud person walk around talking about themselves has no time for other people around them, and so you start to cause divisions in the community because you're not caring for other people because you're self-obsessed. You're not thinking about other people because you're too busy thinking, am I ahead of them? Are they better than me or am I better than her? And so community starts to pull apart. And even false humility, pride of self-obsession when you don't like what you see, also breaks apart community because you don't contribute to community because you're like, well, woe is me, I've got nothing to bring, I'm no good, there's no point in me being here. And everyone's there saying, no, no, you've got gifts to bring, no, no, it's hopeless, it's hopeless, I'm, I'm terrible, I don't like what I see. And so, again, it's all about you and you're not bringing your gifts to the community. So whether you're proud or whether you have false modesty, it still pulls apart community. So ugliness and pulling apart community. Pascal, in his Pensée, that is his kind of musings and reflections, wrote this. Without this divine knowledge of the gospel, what could people do but either become elated by an inner feeling of their greatness, which still remains, or become despondent at the sight of their present weakness? In other words, he's saying living by works either elevates you and you're proud and dismissive of other people, or it drives you into the ground and you feel despairing and you can't contribute. Either way, it turns you in on yourself and it tears apart community. That's the problem with living by works. So what's the alternative? Living by faith. Living by faith is what Paul contrasts with it. And I want to show you how it particularly deals with those two problems of your own inner formation and also community as well. Because if living by works causes this kind of ugly personal psychology, living by faith causes a flourishing personal psyche. And the key psychology is actually we haven't had, we couldn't have had a better illustration than what happened to David. Because with this psychology, there's both a fall and a rise that deals with this. Paul gives it as a summary in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says these two things, and notice the fall and then the rise. For all have sinned and fall short, there's the fall of the glory of God, and here's the rise, 
and all are justified, made right with God freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The alternative to living by works is trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you and His estimation of you, and it's got two aspects to it. It's first of all an acceptance of the reality of what you're like, what He says you're like, and that is there in verse 23, all have sinned, that is rejected God, and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice how this deals with the psychology of pride. Because if I'm walking around thinking, well done me, isn't the world lucky to have me, even if I won't frame it like that and I put it across in a nice middle class way, then actually when the gospel confronts you, it says, no, everyone sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a standard and you don't measure up. And so it brings the proud and the haughty down. But it doesn't raise you lower than, bring you down lower than everybody else. It brings you onto a level playing field with everybody else. Because it says all, all, everybody has sinned. This is a commonality to the human condition. None of us can boast in our works because if God evaluates our works, he says they're not good enough. Because we're walking around in life, taking God's gifts, but not giving a moment thought to him. We're trying to justify ourselves by works rather than by the inherent value and worth he has given to us as creatures made in his image. And so all have sinned, and so that humbles pride. It brings you down. Well, you say, yeah, but that just sounds crushing, doesn't it? I mean, ultimately, if everyone's brought down low, then they're all in the gutter. So that doesn't sound very healthy psychologically. That's only half of it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the second part, and are justified, made right, freely, not because of your works, apart from works, by His grace, that is His unmerited favor, given to you in Jesus Christ. So the wonderful truth of the gospel is this, that though you are so sinful and rebellious against God that He had to send His Son Jesus to die for you, yet you are so loved and precious to Him that He was prepared to send His Son to die for you. In other words, you are humbled and then you're exalted because greater love has no person than this, than that he lays down his life for his friend. Jesus has laid down his life for you. The cosmic king of the universe has died for you. He couldn't love you anymore. So he comes up to you if you're feeling in the gutter in life and he says, my friend, rise, rise, rise up. In other words, we don't leave David bubbling under the water waiting for Mark. Mark does like to delay a little bit. It's part of his trick that he plays, by the way, if you're ever thinking about getting baptized. But you don't leave them down there. You pull them up out of the water. Jesus raises you up. He says, in and of yourself, yes, you've fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. That's only half the story. Rise, my friend. You are more loved than you could ever imagine because I was prepared to send my son Jesus to die for you. His good life given to you as a free gift, not because of anything you do, but merely by faith. In another section of Pascal's Reflections, he writes this about how justification by faith functions. So making those tremble whom it justifies and consoling those whom it condemns, the gospel tempers fear with hope. Through the double capacity of grace and sin common to all, it humbles infinitely more than reason alone, but without despair, and it exalts infinitely more than natural pride, but without inflating. Do you hear what he's saying? Properly understood, the gospel gives you a remarkable quality. It gives you a, a joyful, humble 
confidence. Now that is rare and you can't fake that. Humble confidence. Humbled because you realize you're a sinner, but confident because you realize you're deeply loved. And so no longer turned in on yourself and instead turned up and out towards God like a flower blooming in the sun. No longer obsessed with yourself, but instead thinking about other people. And how does this deal with community? Well, in a community, we're going to get a range of people, probably in a range of different seasons of life, depending on how life's going for them. Some days, you know, you feel elated. Other days, you feel down in the dumps. Well, what happens when the gospel comes to meet you? If you're prone to pride and feeling too big in your boots, the gospel pulls you down and says, you're no better than anybody else. Pipe down, join the club, join the community, which is why, by the way, at church, we confess our sins together. It's like the open secret no one here is better than anybody else. It doesn't matter whether you're a partner in a law firm, whether you've achieved a first at university, whether you're an international sports star or a pop star, you're the same as everybody else. Loved by God, a forgiven sinner. Join the club. So no room for special treatment, no room for special favors, no room for looking down our nose at other people. But then if you're having a bad week and you're feeling despondent, it says, don't stay down there. You're loved. You've got gifts to contribute. Rise, my friend, rise. Bring them to the table. And again, that's the open secret. So when someone says, oh, I've got nothing to bring, they say, nothing to bring? Jesus died for you. He loves you. Whatever you've got is valuable. My friend, bring it. The community needs it. Do you see how this forms a radical new identity as a community? This is what we need. Living by faith. Well, lastly, let me close with some words of application as we think about the freedom of living by faith. In Romans 1.17, Paul writes, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, he's saying that living by faith isn't just the kind of the first step. You know, David, in the first step in the Christian ladder, you live by faith, and after he's been a Christian for a bit, we're going to tell him all the other stuff he needs to do, and we'll give him the works now. It doesn't work like that. Instead, faith is the way in, and faith is the way on. Growing as a Christian is deepening in understanding of what living by faith means and its implications in all of life. Let me draw out three wonderful implications. First of all, it liberates us from self-obsession. I mean, our society is increasingly self-obsessed. You want proof of that? I should have brought one, but I don't own one. I should have brought the selfie stick. I mean, think about the selfie stick for a moment. This is a remarkable invention of the 21st century, isn't it? What this basically tells you is that we have got to the point of taking photos of ourselves so much that it's almost become embarrassing in public to keep asking people to take a photo for you. So we've now got a stick that does it for us. By the way, if you own a selfie stick, I'm not judging you, I'm just pointing out that if other people in other cultures are quite astonished that there is this invention which is about taking photos of yourself all the time and then post them on social media. Nothing wrong with doing that necessarily, but it just shows the self-orientation. And of course, it's not on its own, is it? It goes with the whole you do you. If you don't do you, no one else is going to do you. What's your career about? It's primarily about you and self-fulfillment and, you know, self-actualization and self. I mean, self-everything, right? But the word that's purely self-ish is not an attractive word. No one's complimenting anyone when they're saying, well, you know, she's just so into herself. She's really selfish. Great girl. That's the, it's not a compliment. And so we need to be liberated from self-obsession. How do we do that? 
Because the gospel says, my brother, my sister, it's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. So notice you're still in the picture, but just the picture is reframed. Jesus at the center. You in the picture are deeply loved, but you're not the center of the picture. And so how do you liberate yourself from self-obsession? Well, here's a bit of advice. For every one time you're tempted to take a look in the mirror at self, take three at Christ. They'll do you a lot more good. It turns you out towards him, turns you out towards others, stops you being so turned in on yourself. And look, whether you like what you see in the mirror today or not, be much more focused on Christ and his estimation of you, which is sinner who is deeply loved, daughter, son who is deeply, deeply loved, very wonderful with many gifts, but equally forgiven and justified because of what he's done for you, not because of what you have done for him. Freedom from self-obsession. In C.S. Lewis's Lewis's excellent chapter on pride in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, that when you meet a truly humble person, you never go away thinking, that person was really, really humble, because that would have been shining the spotlight on them. When you meet a really humble person, you go away thinking, that person took a lot of interest in me. You know, the surest sign that you're not very humble is you're constantly telling everybody how humble you are. It's ironic, right? A humble person is focused on others, Be that person, and you become that person by focusing on Christ, the one who came not for himself but for you. Freedom from self-obsession. Secondly, freedom from division. It's interesting that when Paul comes to land this letter of Romans, and we don't have time to see it, in chapter 14 and 15, the thing he lands on is community. The thing he's written all these wonderful chapters of the gospel about is community, and how community properly formed in the gospel of righteousness by faith leads to even the great division of the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles being able to come together. And so for us, he would say, if you really get the gospel, you will see it in the way you respond to community. And can I just put that out as a challenge? Because one of the things that a lot of sociologists are noticing, particularly with younger adults today, is they love, or maybe you love the idea of community, But if I can put it quite bluntly, you're poor at community. You love the idea of it, but you are pretty much the first to leave when you don't like it because that's what you've been told. If you don't like this community, just move on. My friends, can I say, if we do something wrong here at church, if someone wrongs you in some way and you just walk out the door at the first sign of trouble, you will never experience the benefits of community. We want to make every effort here that if you're wronged, you can talk to the person about it graciously and lovingly and stick with him to work it out. Test us on this. If we get it wrong as a leadership, then we will say sorry when we've got it wrong. Try us out on this. But too often it's a great sadness that we hear of people leaving sometimes and we don't know why. In which case you have to work at community. Let's be good at saying sorry and forgiving each other and working it out. Commit to community. It has to be worked out. So it liberates us from self-obsession, it liberates us from division, and last of all, it liberates us for mission. Paul has a great concern in the letter of Romans to see this gospel go from Rome into the Mediterranean and then out to the ends of the earth. And by virtue of the fact we're talking about it here today, it obviously worked. In other words, the gospel was the thing which liberated people for mission as well. How did it do that? Well, because... One of the great fears, particularly in the first century, was you would be rejected 
or persecuted when you share the gospel. Similarly for us today, we might think, I can't share my Christian faith. What if people reject me? And we know from surveys that's a big fear people have today. Well, how do you deal with rejection? It always stings, but it stops defeating you and stopping you sharing the good news when you realize that even though it stings, because Jesus loves me, I can take the sting. Because it ultimately doesn't define me. I'm not defined by someone's approval or lack of it no matter how important they are in my workplace or in my friendship group, so I can graciously share the gospel. And if they don't accept it, that's up to them. That's between them and God. I've just got the good news and I want to share it with people. And if they say to you, by the way, do you think that makes you better than me because you've got this gospel and I don't, you say, of course not. That would be justification by works. Let me talk to you about justification by faith and how it makes all the difference. So liberation from self, liberation from division, liberation from mission, this is the response to the gospel. Let me pray. Let's leave us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this gospel, this gospel that Paul preached in the first century that gripped the world and turned it upside down in many ways, and that still now, 2,000 years on, is being proclaimed and lived out by many, many people around the globe today. We pray, Lord, that we'd realize how this gospel requires faith, not works of the law, Um, to be justified, but to be right with you happens because we trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Might this humble us and also give us confidence? Might it unite us as a community of faith together? We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.